This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who listens. Appreciate you far and near. Got some wonderful uh, emails this week from folks and uh, great guest suggestions and nice feedback. So thank you. Shout out today to Lee, the great publicist who sent me this beautiful little book. It's called Love Letters from an Arsonist. What a good title. And it's kind of an unflinching view of the American South, which has always been fascinating to me since I grew up in Florida. And the author is on here today. He is also the founder of Prometheus Dreaming. We're going to talk a little bit about that. It's a digital library journal. He has also written poetry in several publications. Welcome to the family for the first time, David Vandenberg. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. As a Floridian by birth, one of the few, and you are too, talk about your childhood. I'm curious because from the book, I think we had a lot of overlapping. Well, what I'd say is uh, when I'm out here in in Los Angeles now, and the first question that I always get when people find out that I'm from Florida is, oh man, how many times did you go to Disney World? And they're always disappointed when I say, I'd like, I don't know, three, you know, um, the, the kind of Florida that, that is sold to, to tourists um, to get them to come is, is really not what I grew up with. Um, <clears throat> my family, uh, you know, we grew up in central Florida. Um, we had a, uh, a hunting lease down, down south in the swamps on, uh, on Mormon land. Um, and so I'd, I spent a lot of time there, you know, in the trailer with my, my dad and my, uh, three brothers and, you know, uncles and cousins, uh, out in the swamps, sort of trekking around and, um, you know, being bad. <laughs> so that was much more my experience. Uh, but, but Florida has got really some, some beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, natural landscapes. It's, it's, you know, filled with, with uh, natural springs, um, has great old forests, great swamps, beautiful beaches. And that's, that's more, more what I know. And the wilds are amazing. So I was in South Florida. We were about seven miles from the beach then in a place called Pembroke Pines, which is west of Hollywood. But if you just rode the bike back then, 60s, five miles west, you already were out in the wilds and or a little further it was a two-lane highway and we weren't supposed to go out there god bless mom and dad we never told them we would go out there and hack around and chase by snakes there were bears out there and alligators nobody ever got really hurt but it was it was remarkable and it was our church in a way just to be amongst nature be out there and the animals and the wilds and swimming in rock pits and shit it was it was wild but it was we loved it yeah, yeah. I mean, like there, there are, um, you know, all of these wild creatures in Florida that, uh, you know, now, especially with with the spread of urban sprawl in the past few decades, are sort of getting pushed into people's backyards. Um, but you know, I was I was four years old and I almost got killed by a six foot long water moccasin, um, and that's just you know, it's just something that that can come with the territory when you're you're trekking around out there. Um, seen i've seen uh i'm pretty sure it was a uh bobcat 
because I was in the middle of nowhere and this sort of cat creature comes along and, and hisses at me and takes off running. Uh, but uh, fortunately, I haven't, I haven't come face to face with any bears. Um, although I did, I did see a, a fun study the other day that uh, took a look at all of the Bigfoot sightings and overlaid them with uh, known areas of bear territory. And uh, wouldn't you know it, there is a remarkable overlap between the two. So the thinking is that all the Sasquatch sightings are just uh, people seeing black bears walk around on their on their hind legs. If you go deeper into the footnotes, shows there was a lot of uh, empty beer cans too in connection to those same sightings where they thought it was the Bigfoot. Well, you know that's how you that's how you uh, attract the Bigfoot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> a few beers. We saw, luckily, we saw the black bears from a car and once afar from a bike. And it saw us and took off. God bless the poor thing was scared, smart enough to know we we're more evil and a threat. We were always curious if we'd see a black panther, never saw one. Of course, no one would have lived to tell. Uh, we probably would have got the fat guy, Jeff. <laughs> that's why you all, whenever, that, that's, the, that's the secret to surviving the Florida wilds is always make sure you're not the slowest one in the group. Yeah, Jeff was the mascot, and we bring him along, and he never, luckily, the only thing he suffered was our insults and constant barbs, which thankfully he forgave us for later. Did you, that's, by the way, water moccasins, for people who don't know, they will swim across a river, a canal, a lake, and try to engage and fight you. They are the meanest snakes in the world. Oh, yeah, they're wild. And they have this, uh, you know, they're, they're called cottonmouths, too, because they have this uh, white mouth that's inside. And I remember just sitting there and it was at it was at dusk and we were hunting for deer. And uh, my dad had stepped over it. It was coiled up. He thought it was a cow pie. And uh, suddenly this head rises up and it's you know about as thick around as a grown man's arm. And it's just opening and closing its mouth. And you can just see the, the, the white there in the dusk. Um, and of course, you know, my dad is terrified that I'm, I'm for I'm just going to run straight through the snake to come get to him. Um, but fortunately, I had a, enough sense to, to back off. Um, it was interesting, you know, you mentioned uh, that that sort of going out into the wilds. It was like a church of sorts because, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people who, who spend time in the woods, it, it does become or it has this. Uh, you know, this this grand sense of. Of uh, being part of a larger organism or being part of a larger cycle, and uh, you know, growing up and and seeing sort of the the gritty side of life, um, you know, killing animals or or finding dead things out there, finding the the bones or you know, hauling away intestines or or what have you, you know, you see you see life and death in your hands, and it it you know gives you this this. I don't know, to me, it was a great sense of mystery about the world and about, um, you know, the the capital B beyond. Was your family religious? Did you also get indoctrinated in that? Because all through Florida is a lot of that Baptist Church of Christ crowd. Oh, yeah. Although, oh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of them. I My family was really religious, um, but uh, we were actually Orthodox, Orthodox Christians. Um, so that's uh uh, you know, way back when uh, it was just the Catholic Church uh, in the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire split into East and West Rome, or you know, Rome and Byzantium, 
uh, Rome went Catholic and Byzantium went Orthodox. Um, so it's a, uh, it's an old faith. Um, and it was, you know, it was intense, you know, we'd, we'd be there, um, at least a, a couple days a week, a few hours a pop, uh, during holy seasons, you know, you'd be there maybe, um, three to five times a week, depending on, depending on where exactly in the holy season you were. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty involved in it. My, one of my best friends growing up, he's actually a monk now up there, but for the grace of God, go I, I guess. Did you ever buy into it all? Because we got a dad was an atheist, mom was borderline atheist who was an Irish Catholic by birth. She sort of introduced us to it, and I just never bought. I, you kind of lost me at the talking snake, and a lot of it just didn't add up. And wait a minute, who did Cain and Abel marry? There was just too many holes in the plot. You know, I did, I did. Believe it or not, I um, I was really into it. I. Uh, I, uh, you know, served at the altar and all of that. Um, and you know, it, it really had a profound effect on me, um, where, uh, my, our preacher was a real, you know, fire and brimstone preacher, you know, very much, uh, you know, uh, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, it, it gave me a lot of anxiety, um, that uh that you know these were that there were these very strict rules and that uh you know i i firmly believed that hell was a, a literal place that i was gonna end up and that um you know more likely than not that was where i was gonna go um and finally you know i i did you know i i got through it um you know a few years later you know when i was later in my teens I was able to leave the church, but it still had had a huge impact on me. Um, it actually made me want to go on. And I studied uh, I studied religion in college because you know I was like I don't know who the hell I am, uh, but this has this has had such a huge impact on me. You know, to the point where I'd I'd be up at night hiding under the blanket or hiding under the bed because uh, you know I I didn't say my prayers enough, so I didn't know if I died if I was gonna. Uh, go to go to heaven or not um I think there's actually a poem where i i sort of reference that um and i i i you know had these experiences and i was like well i, you know, I need to figure out what this thing is so that way you know maybe i can maybe i can understand myself that's so sad the shame and guilt that goes on so many lives and people buy into it and not good enough and you need the invisible product you know, it's super misogynist patriarchy. It's sad. It's so damaging. And it's very little to do with the teachings of Jesus, who had beautiful things to say and lived a beautiful life. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, when you when you're relying on, um, or when you're trying to build a society that's that's designed by men who lived, you know, three, 4000 years ago, uh, you know, it's just, it's just not a good idea. Um, and then especially if you're trying to uh, to sort of codify the the most stringent part of the law uh, of those times, that's, you know, that, yeah, that's just not good. When you were working doing the altar service and were a young boy, teen boy, did you ever get uh, invited away for the priest's weekends? You know, I never did. I never did. Yeah. Um, I know there's been a lot of controversy around that now. 
uh, it's, uh, it's been appearing, which is good. Um, but I was fortunate enough to never have to have to deal with that. I, I kind of avoided that too. I, maybe I wasn't cute enough. <laughs> Talk about ghosts too. You write about ghosts in the book. I do. You know, I'm not, I'm not much of a, of a ghost believer. Um, you know, I'm more of a, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm a leaning more towards atheist, but I'm, I'm still agnostic, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, being in the woods, being out there around a bonfire, you know, with my, my dad and my brothers, uh, I mean, my dad would recite Edgar Allan Poe or he'd uh, sing the songs that have been passed down to him by his grandfather and great grandfather. And, uh, you know, out in the darkness beyond, you'd have the cattle lowing, you'd have the, uh, you know, coyotes howling and sort of it, it lends itself to an, uh, an atmosphere where you would definitely believe like ghosts, you know, ghosts live beyond the bonfire light. Um, so even though, you know, to me, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's anything there. It's still, I guess, you know, doesn't doesn't mean I'm not scared of them. <laughs> it's a very, uh, uh, you know, very strange uh, a way to, to view it, I guess. Um, and then as I wrote, as, as I incorporated that as part of the atmosphere in my writing, what I came to to understand is that the ghosts um, in my writing are, are, you know, standing as something much bigger than just themselves as ghosts. Rather, they're standing for uh, the things that have been forgotten or the things that have been erased in the South's past. Um, and uh, they're, they're coming to the fore as, as sort of the reality is cracking under the stress of, of trying to maintain this, this lie or this facade. Um, and they're coming through those cracks uh, to, to finally get a chance to say what they want to say. What do you think in Florida, they're trying to ban all these books, even a book about Roberto Clemente, the great right fielder for the pirates and anything. It's, they're so afraid of the truth and progress. And isn't that, I mean, we know what happened and they're, I don't think they're trying to protect children. I think they're trying to protect the lie of the lost cause. Yeah. Yeah. And for, you know, for folks that, that aren't as familiar, you know, in the in the south especially you you have uh what's taught in school is that um you know it, it teaches the civil war as sort of this like big unavoidable moment when you had big government coming in and, and telling normal folks you know how they how they could or couldn't structure their lives and um you know sort of glosses over the whole slavery part or else it it attempts to put it in some sort of uh more positive light um and it's it presents the Southern soldiers and the Southern politicians as standing up for, um, you know, standing up for family, standing up for their homeland. And it, it creates this like really noble cause. Um, and it says, well, you know, and obviously the South was bound to lose because, you know, we didn't have the, the uh, manufacturing power of the North and, and they knew that anyway, and still they fought. Um, and it it completely erases. I mean, you know, I went to I went to a good high school. Um, our history books had basically nothing in it from 1865 up until 1914. You know, like and maybe you'd have a chapter and it's just the Gilded Age, and then the teacher says, "Okay, well, we're just going to skip this chapter this year," and then you know, you skip it the next year too. 
and uh, and no one's really interested in, in looking into um, or you know no one's an authority I should say no one in authority is really interested in looking into uh, into the truth of of those times um, you know because it is it is so terrible you know the terrible things that were done and the terrible sins that were that were committed um, there's a I, you know, I, I, I had no idea there's a race massacre you know 20 minutes away from where I grew up back in uh, in 1920s uh, because some you know some some black folks wanted to vote and uh, you know the white town wasn't about to let that happen and so they they just killed them um, that's not taught anywhere anywhere what do you think would happen if people knew the truth you know if you had asked me 10 15 years ago i just i would say oh you know i assume that people would would understand but right now i think uh the way that that society has been divided and the way that um news media is able to yeah you know, I, I use news media as sort of like general um entertainment media is able to you know uh advertise itself only to uh, the certain demographic that wants to keep believing it. I think, I think you'd have people say, Oh, you know, that's, that's fake. That's fake news. Or, Oh, it probably wasn't as bad as that. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a, it's a powerful psychological phenomenon when you, when you, when you think that something's true or when you want something to be true, you're only going to look for and only going to accept the facts that suit your viewpoint. Um, and I think that's what would happen now. I think, I think, you know, folks would just throw it out. Confirmation bias. The brain is lazy, especially as you get older. I've been following the Dominion defamation suit against Fox, which is amazing. And it just came out all the Fox hosts and news people knew that Trump lost. And they were saying, this is crazy. But Murdoch is saying, and the, and the head of the organization, if we tell the truth, the viewers will turn it off. They've created this monster and they'll go to the own or Newsmax. We have to keep lying if we want to keep our audience. But they knowing the and they're gonna they're gonna get pay a fortune. Did you uh I don't know if you if you read the um the memo, I don't know if it was the memo or if it was in one of the uh, court proceedings. Um, the source that they were relying on, this is the source that Sidney Powell kept pushing, and then they kept having Sidney Powell on the show. She said that it was, uh, you know, she would get her information by entering into a trance-like state where the wind would tell her things, and that the wind told her she was a ghost, but she didn't believe the wind. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. But she thought it might be a time traveler. Yeah, yeah. I have a neighbor in Florida. I haven't been down there in a while, but every night, God bless him. He's a good person, but he doesn't do anything but watch Fox news all day. And there's no penetrating that mindset. He doesn't want to really know different. He doesn't want to know things that will make him have to rethink everything he's done. And I don't think you can reach people like that. And like you say, I don't think now I don't know if the truth would help. I th I think we should still teach it because young people are more flexible. Their brains. I don't see. I don't see a solution. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and uh, you know, my dad is is kind of the same. You know, he's he's a great guy. Um, you know, he he you know, watches Fox News every night. You know, it's it's 
there there are some things that he accepts and there's some things that he doesn't and so you you know you you sort of have this you know split base where you have people who are extremely vocal who have just the most horrible of opinions about things then you have other folks who you know they've sort of said well all right let's just you know they're, they're just trying to to put it in the closet where it's like all right like let's let's move on all right you know trump yeah okay he's uh he's just damaged goods let's move on to someone else um but in doing that you're sort of you're you're ignoring the complicity of this you know maybe more moderate maybe a larger group but you're ignoring their complicity in uh you know everything leading up to january 6th and uh in the ongoing um, political machinations of people like DeSantis, um, you know, who are just actively trying to destroy, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion programs. You know, he came in and, and stripped New College of all of its leadership and is trying to put in a bunch of right-wing administrators, um, you know, trying to just to destroy the lives of trans kids. Um, and, uh, and without having a real, I don't know, a real deprogramming of uh of those moderates i don't know how it's hard to have like a, a big truth and reconciliation um to to bring everyone back together isn't ron DeSantis just a classic fascist <laughs> uh yeah I, you know i guess we'll see how effective he is you know right now he has uh florida has been so gerrymandered it, it you know he he really has no significant opposition if any um, you know, he was able to redraw the, the congressional maps. Um, so he's, he's operated with impunity. And I guess we'll see what happens when he actually goes against uh, someone who can who can fight back. Yeah, he's well, he's going to take on Trump for president. And so is Nikki Haley. So we'll see what happens. Florida's. But I uh, I don't even trust Florida's counting or any of that thing. To me, it's a shady. It's like the Huey Long South down there especially politically there's so many machines and florida is like 55 dumps south florida is completely different from central and northern and the the gulf coast or naples or where i lived in saint augustine it's it's wild dave barry writes about it brilliantly but it's it's truly different fiefdoms yeah it is such dave barry brings me back i used to i used to read his books growing up uh yeah yeah what a great writer what did it feel like? Were you writing as a kid all this stuff? Because you seem like a natural writer. Were you writing stuff down? Were you making making up stories? Were you chronicling all this stuff? Um, you know, I was. I, I was mostly writing, you know, fantasy. So I actually, um, I I I was writing stories before I know how to write, uh, and I and I know that because I have the journal that I that I had as a child when I was maybe you know three years old. And it's, it's, you know, pretty small. It has a bunch of cats on it. And uh, in it, it's just page after page of what starts out at first is just sort of like lines and scribbles, but it's all contained neatly within the, uh, you know, the, the parallel lines of the book. And then, you know, you go in a little bit deeper and suddenly it's just all of the letters, you know, just like a bunch of A's and Z's. And so I'd started to learn the letters at that point. And I would go around and I would write like that. And then I'd go and I'd read my stories to my parents. Um, and then from there, you know, towards the end of it, I can actually see there's like, you know, some, some uh, you know, one page long stories. And actually the very first story that I wrote was about witches. 
Uh, so it's it's something that I've that I've always done, um, and just never never shared or never forced myself to complete. Um, and it's really only in the past few years, um, as I, you know, as I as I matured and I as I sort of became more more, I, I don't know, comfortable with myself, uh, maybe not so much confident as. Um, I knew that I would always regret not doing more with my writings. And that was when I started to submit to the poetry journals. Um, that's when I started to put a book together. Um, and that's what, what led me here. Talk about Prometheus Dreaming, which is a great name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that, um, it was a few, I think it was, I think it was 20, 2019 maybe that I founded it. The, the, thing that i that that is i think that every writer is going to acknowledge is um there's so much good writing out there that does not have um visibility and that's not shared and that's not celebrated um and so i had the time and i was like well you know okay what can i do about it um and so i i put it together um you know, I, I occasionally have people help me with it, um, but for the for the longest time, I was just sort of running it by myself. Um, you know, taking in uh, prose and and poetry, you know, short stories, essays, you know, really you know, personal stuff, some really beautiful stuff, taking in artwork, and trying to uh, to to you know match these pieces together um, and build an audience. Um, and uh, you know, I really, I really enjoy doing that. Um, you know, put together a few poetry competitions. Uh, we had, uh, I think, this this past year, one of our one of our artworks was selected as a best of the net finalist. Um, so that was very exciting. Um, but you know, it just sort of further confirmed my belief that there are there are so many talented folks out there um, who who you know, just haven't found the opportunity to get their work in front of someone who's going to take the time to appreciate it. What does your old school dad think of his son, the poet who lives in uh, super liberal California? He is thrilled. He is absolutely thrilled. He is, he is, you know, an amazing, fantastic dad. You know, we had a lot of, we had a lot of trouble growing up. Um, he and I, uh, you know, it's the old cliche of he and I are extremely similar. And so we fought constantly. Um, but then once I was, you know, once I had my own place and I could sort of approach him more on a man to man level, you know, that sort of, again, like you can think about like Southern man to Southern man, um, you know, it, the, the relationship really started to heal. And now you know, I talk to him at least a few times a week or I try to, um, you know, he's, he's thrilled that I'm writing the book. He's, I think he, I think he bought 10 copies on pre-order. So, uh, yeah, that tells you everything you need to know right there. I can tell you from experience, you want to cherish every minute you got left or you have left because it gets more and more precious. And as you get older, you appreciate them and their flaws, but also the amount of sacrifice and love. And you remember so many kindnesses and you have a greater respect for them and their sacrifices. And we were lucky because our dads were in the picture. Yeah, I mean, my, uh, you know, when I, when I had my son, 
um, you know, the, just the, the love that I felt for him and, and understand, you know, it, it helped me understand more, um, you know, how my dad felt for me and, and why he acted the way that he acted and what he was trying to do and, and, uh, everything along those lines to try to, you know, support the family and provide for the family. Isn't Florida just going to be underwater in the next 50 years anyway, with the climate change? And I'm only, I'm not, I'm only kidding. It might be sooner. It might be a little <laughs> later, but. Yes, especially South Florida. I mean, you know, we're in, we're central Florida. So hopefully we'll last out for a little bit. Although Florida itself is pretty much flat. You know, it's maybe just a few feet above sea level. As a father, what do you think about the environmental changes? Is your son's going to grow up in a world, there might be already collapse in, uh, at least environmentally, maybe civilization wise. We're going to see that in the next 10 years. We're already seeing the West from part of the United States might run out of water. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a very scary thought. Um, it's something that I, I talk about a little bit with my, uh, with my older brother. He has two, two kids as well. Um, and it's, you know, it's this question of, uh, you know, how, what, what do we need to do to uh, try to make sure that there's going to be something left for the kids and for their kids? Um, and, uh, you know, some of my friends are, are in the camp that, uh, you know, they're just not going to have kids, that, it's, that they're not going to bring kids into the world. And, you know, if, if folks can do that, if that's what works for them, then, you know, I admire that. Um, but I, you know, I, I always wanted to have a family. And so the question is, all right, you know, what do, what do I need to do um, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, he'll have water to drink, air to breathe, and, and hopefully some grass that he can stand on? Well, share some tips because I've been getting a lot of emails from parents on this very question. <laughs> uh man if i if i knew what to do to fix the environmental crisis I, you know i don't know i'd i'd say um i you know i would love to move out of out of los angeles uh there's no way my my wife would let me um but uh, i you know i'd love to move somewhere uh a little bit more a little bit more north uh you know something that'll that'll heat up a little bit in the next in the next few years, uh, sort of position myself there, but no, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in LA. But back to the land is the, maybe the only hope, not in a survivalist. We're going to kill Mad Max. Anybody who comes over the hill, you might have to, I wouldn't want to live that way, but just to be able to grow one's food, get some water back to simplicity. You know, there's, there's that, that, that would be so much work. Oh my God. <laughs> just, you know, yeah, I have, I have a couple of friends who went and bought some acres out in, uh, in North Carolina and they have a, they have a beautiful place. Um, you know, I'm still, I guess, I, I guess I'm still ever hopeful that we can find a way to at least try to steer our larger economic system into, into a more sustainable um, model, you know, and I, I, you know, I studied tax law, um, in law school. And so I did, I, I did a lot of, um, reading on, you know, what are the, what are the appropriate levers that you can sort of pull to try to, to change how businesses interact, um, with, uh, with consumers and with the, the larger world. Um, and you know, with that, like I, I think that there's options there. It's just that there's there's uh, no real political, no real cohesive political will to take the steps that are needed. 
Did you ever read any of David K. Johnston's books, like Perfectly Legal on the tax system? He's been on a few times, a Pulitzer Prize journalist. No, I don't think I have. Highly recommend to the listening audience. Google David K. Johnston on taxes. He's also probably the leading expert on Trump. He's covered him since the casino days. Those he's told a charlatan and everything like that. Guys, one of those old school classic journalists like a Seymour Hirsch. Where if you get in the crosshairs and you're and you're a criminal, you're he's going to be exposed. Luckily for Trump and and most white elite, there is no consequences if you are the white elite. But you do get exposed either way. Yeah, you get briefly embarrassed, and then you go out and you say, "Ah, oh, that's a hoax." Or even if I did it, it's not that bad. <laughs> that's pretty much how you get away from it. The greatest consequence, if it's really bad, is they make you go on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Uh, Rudy Giuliani. Oh, what have you done? Before I let you go, I know you have a lot going on. Uh, what advice would you give to writers out there? I know so many people, because I've written books. How do you write a book? I said, just start writing. Give yourself permission. Write every day. I love Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way to Prime the Pump. She's been on a few times, too. Great book, if you're listening. Also, uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. But, David, what tips do you have for the aspiring around the world who want to write? I've, I've read a couple of those books. I've, you know, I had some friends who are very into the war of art or is it war on art or war of art. I forget. Um, and uh, the artist way, I think for me, um, the biggest thing that it, it took for me was just a reminder to myself that, um, you know, people don't really, people probably don't care about what you've got to say. And that's a good thing. Because there's there's so much anxiety in writers about oh well you know are people gonna like it um, is what I'm writing good and and they sort of shoot themselves in the foot before they even put something down or else they put something down and and it's not what they hoped to see and so they're just gonna not work on it anymore or they're gonna give up go to a different project and you know it's just no one no one cares if it's if you know if if you look at it as nobody cares about it then you can just sit down and, and finish something. And if it's not good, well, you know, no one's going to care either way. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, just get it out there and, you know, maybe you'll be wrong. Maybe someone's going to find it interesting. Um, so that's, that was sort of the first thing. And then the second thing that I did was, you know, what is it, what is it that's really unique that, that you can bring? What's a really unique story that you can tell? What is it that you're able to do better than anyone else? Um, and for me, you know, the people who, who pick up my, my book, you know, they'll, they'll notice it's separated into, into three parts. They'll notice that the third part um, or the third epistle is called Pinecone Sun. And it's, uh, you know, it's all sort of, um, to me, it was, it was the, the early poems that I wrote where it was much more personal, much more, um, you know, narrative about, about my life or my experiences. And then from there, I, I, I asked, okay, what is it that I can do better than anyone else? Um, and that's what led me to write the second two epistles, because I, I said, I have these experiences in the South, I have these experiences in the swamp, I have these experiences on the cusp between, uh, you know, the waking world and the sleeping world, between life and death, and let me put something down. Um, and uh, leaning hard into that with the knowledge that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like it and that's fine, but the people who do like it 
are going to be really attracted to it because it's something that's that's really unique because it's something that they've never seen before. And with that, if I if I may, I'd love to read just the title poem before uh, before we go, if that's all right with you. I was going to ask you to read one, and that's perfect, perfect title. The title is Love Letters from a Narcissist. Daddy was a wildfire, burned himself inside out, spat out pine cone suns, what can only grow in flames. Held me close, so I burned his fingers, kissed me on flintlock mouth, belched smoke, laughed, that's my boy. I love stars and tarry skies. Pick them out of constellations like loose diamonds. Turn to glass and greasy palms, smashed to pieces against chipped asphalt. Said, walk on, boy, that bridge was made to burn, and you more tender than man. Drank gasoline from mama's breast, breathe fire when I dream. Love you strong as devil winds. Remember me when sky is red, and night haze reads 110, and moon as big as it's ever been. Because, baby, I've been burned before, and you're the match for me. Saw the future in the blaze. Ash footprints walk backwards and half ghost step. White corn liquor sings. And all I ever was or am is nothing like I hope to be. Found God out back making mash. Ask, why you make me like this? He say, there are a hole deep down at the bottom of you. I ask why, he say, my son, because you're like me. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.